0: Turn your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 1. We read from chapter 3, and we'll look at it a little bit in each chapter as we take a, a look this morning at the book of Habakkuk, but we'll begin in a moment with Habakkuk chapter 1. Trouble. One of the common denominators of life. We all sooner or later, find trouble knocking on our door. And trouble respects no boundaries. Boundaries of race, boundaries of religion, boundaries of age, and boundaries of social status, economic privilege. Trouble comes to you, and trouble comes to me. Sickness and hardship, Depression, and disappointment, divorce. It will sooner or later come to your family too. Eventually, someone that you love is going to die. It's so easy for us to understand when difficulties darken the door of those who have no place for the Lord in their life. Such situations seem to simply be explained by the cause and the effect. The cause is their sin. The effect is their suffering. Their sin eventually has found them out. But when we, as God's people, we begin to suffer, we find stuck in our throat the hard question that will not be swallowed away. Why? Why, oh God, do your people suffer? When I see suffering come calling to God's people, I've asked that question many, many times. Why, God? Why now? Why this one? Why? Surely you yourself have asked God that question too. If you haven't, You eventually will. When I was teaching at the Uganda Baptist Seminary, I began to informally interview the pastors and ask them their stories. And one pastor's name was Sam, and Sam said he felt called to go to a particular village and to start a new church, to bring the gospel there in that village. He was committed to it. He felt absolutely called to it. And Sam said, for The first six months, when he started church, he'd open. It would be just his wife. It would be the only person to hear him preach. For six months, he said, I preached to no one but my wife. I would study. I would prepare. I would go out. We would meet. We would gather. It would be just me and my wife, and I preached to her. Those were difficult days. For Sam, and doing what he felt God had called him to do. And then during those difficult days where it was just Sam and his wife in the church, their two-year-old son died and was buried in the midst of their already dark depression. Pastor Sam said he was having some difficult days trying to serve God. He was in a moment of despair. We can respond to the despair in our lives by different ways. First of all, we can choose to become bitter and resentful, declaring that there is no fairness to be found in the world created by God. We can be bitter. We can insist on holding God accountable and decide that because of his unfairness, because he's abandoned his own people to suffering, we're going to throw our faith away. Perhaps... Arthur Gossett said it best, when faith comes hard, there's some people who want to fling their faith away, but in heaven's name, he says, fling it away to what? Perhaps some of you are there yourselves this morning, you're ready to throw your faith away. In John chapter 6, we have a similar scene when would-be, could-be disciples are gathering around our Lord, and he explains the demands of discipleship, and they began to fall away one by one, to drift away from following the Christ. So many had walked away during that particular message that Jesus turns to his 12 apostles and asks in John six sixty seven, you don't want to go away too, do you? Go now if you need to go, He says. And Peter proclaims the truth that he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? Throw our faith away to what? He seems to be saying. You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter makes a good point. The times that we are tempted to throw our faith away because of the suffering in our lives. To whom would you turn then? Christ alone has eternal life and Christ alone has the answer. We can choose to become bitter. Yes, we can choose to become resentful. We can choose to throw our faith away when faith comes hard. Or secondly, we can choose to keep our faith when faith comes hard even in the midst of trials and tribulation. If we can choose to keep our faith, even when faith comes hard, in the midst of trials and tribulation. That's the position that the book of Habakkuk takes. The Babylonian army by now is pressing on Judah. God's people, it's the 6th century B.C., Habakkuk could not understand why these evil and godless people were getting the upper hand over God's own people. Look at Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. The oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw, how long, O Lord, will I cry for help and you will not hear? I cry out to you violence and yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. Yes, in Habakkuk 1, four, We realize that Habakkuk is a book for those who live in the meantime between that revelation of God's promises and peace and the actual fulfillment of that revelation, between the time when God has made his victory and his purpose clear, and the final time when that divine purpose become realized on all the earth. Habakkuk calls God's people in the meantime to walk by faith. Look at Habakkuk 2, 4, the last line. But the righteous will live by his faith. But the righteous will live by his faith. Now, that should sound familiar to you. It is one of the most quoted Old Testament passages by New Testament writers. The righteous one shall live by his faith. Sometimes quoted, the righteous one will live by faith. is quoted in Romans. It's quoted in Galatians. It's quoted, quoted in Hebrews. It's a faith that lives in the world not as it ought to be, but as it is. Not as it will be, but as it is. The righteous one right now, while the Babylonian army is pushing on the edges, will live by his faith. Habakkuk faces a dilemma that confronts the faithful people of every age, the dilemma of unanswered prayer, the dilemma of suffering. Look back at chapter 1, verse 2 again. He asks the question, how long, O Lord? How long will I call out for help? And you're not listening, God. I cry out to you violence when I see it, and you do not save us from the violence. It is a faith of the people who are asking, God, how long and why? It is a, a faith for the people for whom faith comes hard. It is the experience of everyone who's prayed beside a sickbed for healing only to be confronted with death. It's the prayer of everyone who's prayed for love and kindness to come into a home and only found hatred and anger. Habakkuk, the prophet, typifies the faithful person of God who has to live in a world as it is and who has grown weary with the world's ways and wickedness. In chapter 1 and verse 13, he asks a question about the middle of the verse. Why do you look on favor with those who ill treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those who are more righteous than they? Habakkuk is confused. The Babylonians are coming and they're going to win and there's violence. How long, O oh Lord, and why and where are you? I want to say a few things. When we must live by our faith in the hard days, first of all, we need to realize that God's ways are mysterious. God's ways are mysterious look at chapter 1 verse 5 look among the nations observe be astonished and wonder because i'm doing something in your days and you would not believe it if you were told look up judah this is my hand at work i'm doing something marvelous If i told you you wouldn't understand That God goes on to say that He's actually raising up the Chaldeans and Babylonians to punish His people for their own sins. God's ways are marvelous and mysterious. And our assessment of the situation in our own life and the lives of those around us might not always be correct. God's methods are sometimes beyond our own understanding, and God is working even when it seems like it's a disaster. Isaiah the prophet puts it this way. As the heavens are high above the earth, so are my ways above your ways and my thoughts above your thoughts. We can never fully understand the mind of God while we're on earth. When we demand an understanding of everything that's happening, we're demanding that which is impossible, that which is not always ours to grasp. When we know something about the marvelous workings of God and the power of God and the majesty of God, it drives us to humility and faith and to say, Lord, I can accept the fact that you know more than I know. And I will keep believing in you even when it's hard. Paul says the same thing in that love chapter what we call 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now we see through a glass darkly, and then we shall see face to face. Now we know in part, and then we shall know even as we are known. There are two words in that passage in 1 Corinthians 13. Now and then, now and then. He says it twice. Now we see through a glass darkly, then we will see face to face. Now we only know in part, and then we will know fully. He's contrasting our knowledge now with our knowledge when we find ourselves in the kingdom of God. The knowledge that we have of our God and ourselves and our universe today is comparable to a man who's looking through a mirror, Paul says. Now, it's hard for us to understand what Paul's saying because in our day and time, mirrors give a fairly accurate reflection. In fact, sometimes so accurate as to be cruel, I've discovered. You go in some of these retail stores, they got mirrors with lights around them, they magnify things. Why would anybody buy one of those in their right mind? But the first century mirrors were just polished metal. It was always distorted and warped and unclear. Just a a piece of metal polished. And when a man looked himself in a mirror in Paul's day, he didn't see an accurate reflection. Paul says our knowledge is like a man looking in a a polished piece of metal. It's a distorted imperfect view of what's actually a reality. And one day... In God's kingdom we shall see face to face. Now we can know just part of what's going on, but then we will know all about God and his works. And we shall know, he says, even as we are known. So if you don't understand everything that God is doing in your life or everything that God is doing in your family, Paul would say to you, welcome to the club. Nobody does. If you demand to understand, you're demanding that which is beyond your capacity to understand. So, since God is still God, keep believing in Him. He knows more than we. Vance Havner, Baptist evangelist, used to tell the story of a a grandmother and a family. Grandma was having a lot of trouble, some of it real, some of it imagined. And the family had done everything they could do to help Grandma out. And finally they just told her, Grandma, we've done, told her nicely, we've done everything that we possibly can do. And now you just have to trust God for the rest of it. She got a troubled look on her face. She said, oh my, has it come to that? (laughs) To which the evangelist said, it always comes to that. So we might as well start with that. We must trust God. Secondly, when faith comes hard, we need to realize that God does not work on our timetable. When faith comes hard, we need to realize God does not work on our timetable. God's not working on your timetable, but God is working. We live in a a community where we see a lot of signs that say men at work. Well, Habakkuk has a different kind of sign. God is at work in our lives. fact, like Jesus himself told the Jews, my father is working and I am working, John 5:17. God is at work, though God may not be working according to our own timetable. God is not pressed by your wristwatch or by your calendar. The history of humanity is a history of trying to define time in smaller and smaller increments and waiting less and less. It, it used to be we were, we were happy to know what month something happened, and then we needed to know the week, and then the day, and then the hour, down to the minute. In fact, there are some drag races on television now where the time is reduced to one one thousandth of a second. We're in a hurry. We want to measure every increment of time. God told Habakkuk that when God was ready to remedy the situation, God would do it. So just keep on believing. Patience is not my virtue nor my gift. I'm not feigning up here acting as if I'm asking you to do something I struggle too.' The patience is the ability to idle your engine when you want to strip your gears in life. We all struggle with patience don't we but let me assure you this morning that despite your impatience that God is at work in this world he's not going to be rushed by you and he's not going to be rushed by me he's not going to allow us to impose our own impatience upon him we have to trust God even though God does not appear to be working in our lives I think about the story of Joseph in Genesis, sold into slavery, he's cast into prison, he's misunderstood by his family and falsely accused by his employer's wife. He is forgotten in prison by his friends. At any moment along his faith journey, Joseph could have given up in despair and said, there's no justice in this world and God is obviously not working in my life. I ought to be out of jail and everything ought to all be right, but it isn't and I quit, I give up. He could have done that, but if he had, he would have walked out before the final act of the play. Because God did eventually deliver him from prison, elevated Joseph to the second place of command in all the land of Egypt. And God made him the means of delivering his people in a time of distress. It is only because Joseph could be patient and wait on God that great things were ever accomplished for God and God's people. We have to wait. Wait for God to put together the pieces of the life puzzle of each of us. Wait for God to work on his own timetable. Sam, the Ugandan pastor, as he was telling me his story said, despite the despair and the death of his child and the fact that no one was coming to hear him preach but his wife, he kept on preaching. And eventually, by the time he was telling the story, he had 30 individuals coming to his Ugandan church, which is actually the average size of a gathering of believers in the country of Uganda, and they were planning to build a building at that time, and life had completely changed for him because he was faithful during the dark days to the task that God had called him to do. He could have walked out any moment and said, Nobody's showing up, I'm my wife, God, you called me, but it's not working. I quit. I'm done. God works on God's timetable. Thirdly, even when times are difficult, praise the Lord. Now go back over to chapter three. Even when times are difficult, praise the Lord. 317. Though the fig tree should not blossom, And though there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there are no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord, and I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He he has made my feet like hinds feet. and makes me to walk on high places. It's an agrarian culture, and everything depends on the ranching and the farming on the crops and the cattle but even when the fig tree is fruitless and even when the stalls are empty I will praise the Lord Habakkuk says for some of you this morning God is your God in times of joy you're in a season of joy in your life this morning For some of you here this morning or some live streaming and watching on television, God is your God this morning in a time of sorrow, a time of suffering, a time of despair, a time of depression, a time of death, a time of divorce. You're right there with Habakkuk, and God is not working fast enough for you. But Habakkuk says, even when there's no fruit on the vine, And even when there's no flock in the field, I will praise him. It is so easy to praise God during the good days. Anybody can do that. A time of ease, a time of peace, a time of prosperity. It is a real man of faith, Habakkuk 2, 4. It is a real woman of faith who has the ability to praise him, to trust him, and to rely on him when things seem hopeless. It was a difficult day for Habakkuk. Destruction and violence still mar his community. Strife and contention are rising all around him. Nations rage and devour the weaker than they. The arrogant still rule. The poor are still suffering. Folks are enslaved For labor of emptiness, the false gods are worshiped on the earth, and Habakkuk knows who's working his purpose out, unseen, behind the turmoil. And Habakkuk, therefore, sings in the desert. Habakkuk is setting forth the faith of those who live in the meantime. Between the now and the not yet. John Patton was trying to translate. You know, we have so many translations of the Bible. There's still a lot of people groups who don't have the Bible, even today, in their own language. And he was in the South Sea Islands for a particular tribe that had a language of their own. He learned their language, and he was trying to come up with a word for trust and faith. And they had no no word, no native word for the, the concept of faith or trust. And he was trying to figure out how to communicate faith or trust to them. And one day, a native who had been running hard came to the missionary's house, and he plopped himself down in a large chair and says, it feels so good to rest my whole weight on this chair. That's it, Patton thought. I will translate faith as resting one's whole weight on God. Are you resting your whole weight on God today? The righteous one shall live by faith. It was a bright, clear morning. A large crowd had gathered there around Niagara Falls to see the famous Blondin work, oh, walk over the perilous falls on that little bitty tightrope. The sun was glistening, and the cascading waters were thunderous as usual. Everyone had gathered to see Blondin do it again. He saw his first tightrope walker when he was just five years of age. A circus came traveling through the town, and he tied a rope on two chairs. At age five, he started practicing walking on a tightrope. He was orphaned at age nine, and in order to survive, he took his show on the road and began performing as a child professionally. He was the first man to walk over Niagara Falls on a tight road, 1,100 feet. Below, 160 feet fall on part of it, 270 foot fall on the other. Every time he, he crossed Niagara Falls, he thrilled the crowd. He found ways to jazz it up. He might do it blindfolded, hold the big stick and do it blindfolded. Or he'd Sometimes put a chair on there and sit on the chair on the tight road. Or he had a wheelbarrow and he'd go across it with a wheelbarrow. He'd get in a sack and hop across the rope. He found all sorts of ways to get people coming back to watch him do his incredible act of walking 1,100 feet across Niagara Falls. In fact, one time he did it for the Prince of Wales who begged him, Please, sir, never try to do this again. You name it. He was the best daredevil you had ever seen. His final performance was given in Ireland when he was 68 years of age. He quit doing it, and he didn't die from falling. I'm happy to say he died at 73, uh, peacefully from diabetes. On this particular day, the world's greatest tightrope walker briefly tested the strand, had his bar in his hand to make sure it was all okay, the crowd gathered, he walked all the way across, and they kind of oohed and aahed at every swing he made, and then he walked all the way back, and and then, and then it really, really got good. He turned to the audience. He made a sensational and unbelievable offer. I want to walk across the rope one more time, but with one of you on my back. Crowd started backing up just a little bit. (laughs) He picked out a man at random and said, sir, do you believe I could walk across there with you on my back? He said, yes, I believe you could do it. Well, get on. Not for your life, he said. (laughs) One by one, sir, do you believe that I could successfully walk with you, piggyback all the way across and back? Yes, I believe you could do it. Well, get on. They'd all kind of disappear in the crowd. Everybody believed he could do it. In theory, but no one was willing to get on his back until one man in the crowd stepped forward. Sir, do you believe I can carry you safely across? Yes, I do. Are you willing to get on my back? In fact, I am. The young man climbed on the expert's back and blondness stepped onto the rope, paused momentarily and moved across the rope Successfully. There are so many in that crowd who theoretically believed that Blondie could do the trick with them on their back, but there was only one who was willing to put his weight where his head was. Some of us here this morning, in theory, we believe that God will see us through the hard days, that He can walk us across our suffering and our sorrow the pain in our life, but there are very few of us really willing to climb on board and to actually trust God and His eternal wisdom Their our pain and our suffering and our loss. Yes, the word is sure. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ was at work for Habakkuk and he's at work for you. Fulfilling his very purposes. We have the now, we have the then, and we have to wait in between. In the meantime, in the meantime, the righteous have to get on his back and live by faith. Let us pray. Oh God, I know there's some folks who are hurting in this room today. A prayer that seems unanswered, the mysterious working of God that don't make sense to us right now. Disappointment and hurt, and anger. All that's in this room. Oh, God, may we join the prophet Habakkuk who says, even though there is no fruit on the vine and even though the stalls are empty without cattle, even though you seem to be taking your sweet time, oh, God, I'm going to praise you. I'm going to trust you. And I'm going to join Habakkuk and those in Judah who said, We will live even in difficult days. No, especially in difficult days by our faith. Amen.